Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. <laughs> I'm John. <laughs> I'm Robin. On this show, we break down some of the most controversial, complex, and even polarizing topics facing our society. We use honest, good faith analysis backed by research to form our conclusions. We promise to skew our bias toward what can be factually supported and to make it clear when we're giving you our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We are human. We have blind spots and personal biases, and they will show up sometimes. But the goal of this show isn't to convince you to see things our way. We want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics and present the most truthful information available so that we can discuss and address these issues in a thoughtful and beneficial way. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on this show, and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing, but we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way people have hard conversations, and we think we can do that using research and discussion to create common understanding. And since you're here, we hope you want the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable, maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. We've made it all the way to episode three of our first series of the season. Thank you so much for being with us. If you've made it for the whole ride, uh, if you're just tuning in for this episode, welcome. We've spent the last couple of weeks talking about the concerning pattern we saw in the decisions that were handed down by the Supreme Court this summer. We broke down five of the cases we found to be the most concerning, uh, and then we spent some time talking about the 14th Amendment, substantive due process, and why they are so crucial to the way we live life every day in this country. Let's be clear. Our conversations have really just scratched the surface. As Savannah has told us more than once, people build their entire careers on this stuff. And we so get what, Savannah? That. So what? We're so just going to research it all and become experts yeah, every week. It's Gosh, fine. we are not experts. We're, We're not, not experts. experts. And We're we get experts. that. <laughs> Right? Like it's been a challenge to try to condense everything we wanted to say into a reasonable amount of time. So much so that we had to record some mini episodes. Um, in case you haven't heard yet, we're dropping some bonus content every week on Patreon because we just have too much to say. So far, we've talked about the disturbing precedent set, or more accurately, extended in Shin v. Ramirez and Jones. And we discussed the idea of states' rights and why it's such a topic of conversation right now. Bonus content for this episode, I think, is going to have to be a discussion of how Justice Alito came to be the poster boy for the conservative court right now. Yeah, um, that these are things that, that I think that particularly is worth discussing because his history would not Im it would not lead one to believe that he would become this sort of originalist champion that he seems to be in the, the latest ruling, especially Dobbs v. Jackson in that yeah. ruling, um, he takes a very strong stance. That's all going to be in the bonus episode, though. And I got to cut off my description of it because I can already tell we're going to run out of time. That's true. <laughs> yep. So what we are going to talk about in this episode is why the current court feels like a freight train of conservative agenda. We want to take a few minutes to talk about the ideological imbalance on the, on the current court and why it's dangerous. And then we'll hit the fireside time machine 
and look at the long game conservatives, the long game conservatives have been playing to fill the court with justices sympathetic to their cause. I'm going to, I need to put it like a huge disclaimer here. This episode sounds really super anti-conservative right off the bat. Oh yeah. So understand that's not, that's not what we're saying. We're not inherently anti-conservative. It's just that this particular court and the way things are going right now feels like the conservative agenda, if you will, without putting a negative spin on that word, has gained a lot of momentum that is particularly uh, difficult to resist. Yes. And we think, we do think that where it could lead eventually might be a negative place which has been the co- the 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 concept behind this whole series but understand that we also believe that if like too extreme of liberal ideology entered oh, yeah. in the same area and gained the same momentum it would also take us to a to negative space oh yeah so we would we would also be writing a series on that like um one of the things that concerns us the most is what we talked about a little bit in the states' rights episodes and in our gerrymandering episode, or the bonus content in our gerrymandering episode, is that it feels like when paired with what's going on in state legislatures and in local government, if the court is also pushing a conservative agenda and states are pushing a conservative agenda, there is no representation for people with a more progressive mindset. And that's that's the concern that we want to raise in this series. Um, Right. We do also want to take a couple minutes to talk about why originalism as a judicial philosophy is so valuable to conservatives. Like, what do they stand to gain from what feels like a restriction of liberties? And then finally, we've got to ask what can be done to stop the momentum? How can we slow down this drive to return so much power to state governments that already don't accurately reflect their constituencies? Yeah. So big topics lined up for this episode. Before all of that, though, I want to take a teensy bit of time to add some nuance to our discussion about Vega v. Taco um, two episodes ago. Um, This was the case where the Supreme Court uh, decided that failing to read someone their Miranda rights does not, in fact, constitute a violation of someone's civil rights. You may recall I was somewhat agog at this uh, because of all the weight that had been put on Mirandizing everyone I was going to arrest when I was in federal law enforcement training. And one of my buddies uh, from the Secret Service and a regular listener to the show, hey buddy, reached out afterwards. He sent us an email, very happy about, um, to to explain a little bit because he has since, since our time together in the good old USSS um, he's made the jump to working for local law enforcement. And it turns out it's less common to Mirandize someone on the local level. And this isn't because of bad policing or a campaign to stomp on people's rights or anything like that. It's just a function of the expanded types of interactions that local law enforcement has with citizens compared to federal law enforcement. Whereas I was a federal officer and, and secret service on top of that, meaning that my responsibilities involved a pretty severe set of, of rules and consequences, right? Don't try to trespass on the White House grounds or you're going to be tackled, you know? Like, 
it goes from zero to 100 very quick there. Um, the only arrest that I was, that means that the only arrests that I was like to make, likely to make, um, were criminal arrests and they were going to be handled by federal courts. But as my friend pointed out, the vast majority of his cases were actually settled in or are actually settled in municipal courts, not criminal courts. And since Miranda only applies to criminal cases, there's no need to read somebody who has committed a municipal infraction uh, their Miranda rights. There's no, read to, no need to read the Miranda rights to those people. Also, and probably more important for Vega v. Teco, if you are not intending to ask someone questions that could lead them to incriminate themselves while in custody, you do not need to Mirandize someone. For example, if you're just collecting biographic information. Now, I need to read more about the Vega v. Teco case, but I remember them. I remember the the police uh, side making the lawyers for the police making the claim that the situation wasn't one where he could incriminate himself and therefore Miranda was not necessary. Um, but it's so it's possible that the arresting officer was trying to collect non-incriminatory information. I simply I haven't had a chance to read the whole case. We're this this train's rolling. And uh, unfortunately, my time to really dive in to a lot of these stuff as deep as I would like is is fairly limited. However, that said, this is something my friend and I are both confused and concerned about as well, because in that case, the offense for which Teiko was arrested was sexual assault. And neither of us can think of any scenario or jurisdiction where that isn't a criminal offense. So Teiko should have been Mirandized pretty much immediately. Now, we might be wrong. There might have been a municipal code or citation that could have been issued, but I, I just struggle to believe that that is the case. Um, so all that to say, there's a lot of nuance that goes into reading somebody their Miranda rights. As I said, we spent a lot of time on it during training. This case remains concerning. Yeah. I'd, so hold on before we get into it, yeah. I, I guess like, I guess my question is, no matter what the actual circumstances of the case were, the decision on the Supreme Court stands, right? Like, it's not, yeah. that's not based on the scenario in which someone has read their Miranda rights. It's like, yeah. no, not being Mirandized does not constitute grounds for a civil rights infraction right. that, that for which you can sue, not like a yeah. criminal civil rights violation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. <laughs> the outcome is also very, very concerning. Okay. I just um, want to make sure I was clear. Yeah. I was just, I was more trying to clarify that while I was aghast that you would ever right. arrest somebody without yeah. Mirandizing them, there are circumstances that I was not aware of right. um, that I have since been educated about. And now hopefully our audience has also been educated yeah. about. I mean, I feel like I we know We can be more. taught. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's get into this week's topic. We have basically 30 minutes to cover the little conservative engine that could force through an ideological agenda. Oh, um, we did it. <laughs> got it. <laughs> okay, so. Oh, boy. <laughs> that was a snorter, guys. 
Um, in Federalist Paper <laughs> number 78, Alexander Hamilton said, Liberty can have nothing to fear from the judiciary alone, but would have everything to fear from its union with either of the other departments. One of the most essential characteristics of the judiciary branch of government, at least to the men who invented our government, is its inherent neutrality. It was intended to be aligned only with the Constitution of the United States and not with any particular ideological perspective on it. But while there is no official alliance between the judiciary and another whole branch of government, what we have seen lately is a strong alliance between it and the ideologies that drive the other branches. So we feel like the most appropriate way to start this episode is by talking about the current ideological balance or imbalance on the U.S. Supreme Court. The first thing we need to acknowledge is that this is not the first time the court has swayed heavily to one side or the other. And if the court continues to operate in the same way it does now, it absolutely won't be the last. In our research, we found articles pondering whether under Justice Breyer, we would see American tradition abandoned for transnationalist perspectives. An article cautioning that replacing Justice Scalia with a progressive could lead to completely unrestricted partial birth abortion. Yeah. Even a 1991 article in the American Bar Association Journal calling conservatism on the Supreme Court a fait accompli. Yeah. And I am terrible at pronouncing French. Yeah, so. French is hard. Uh, there, it's so hard. In that same uh, one about the unrestricted partial birth abortion, there was also a note that it could lead to euthanasia by organ harvesting. That was a little yes. weird. That one, I had to yes. post that to our social account because I could not believe what I was reading. But yeah, all I that, that. To, I was like, uh, it was it's one of our most viewed reels weird. of all time, so no big deal. Um, yeah, I know, right? All that to say, oh, though, history has a way of repeating patterns. There is precedent for this kind of imbalance on the court. Eh? See what I did there? Precedent? It's a court joke. Boo. Boo. <laughs> Rude. I didn't. I refuse to your be abused. <laughs> and no, our democracy has not collapsed yet. But that doesn't automatically mean that an imbalance like this one isn't dangerous. You can swim with sharks a hundred times without incident, but it only takes one bad dive to stop the show. And yeah, I threw in a shark joke because Shark Week starts tomorrow. <laughs> well, Shark Week was last week when by the time this episode comes out. Well, yeah, that's fair. We're in the future. Um, so David Orenflicker, a law professor at the University of Nevada, has written extensively about the importance of ideological balance in government. And he points out that the winner-take-all system of politics in the U.S. often denies meaningful representation to half or more, way more sometimes, of any given constituency. It fuels partisan polarization as the party out of power fights to regain control and increases the risk of ill-advised public policies. I believe we have mentioned something similar on this show several times. All of the times. All of the times. And he says, while the winner-take-all mentality isn't the same on the Supreme Court as it is in the White House or even the Senate, the ability of an ideological majority on the court to impose its perspectives creates the same kinds of problems as an executive branch official who imposes a liberal or conservative perspective. 
Members of the public who share the perspectives of the court minority lack meaningful representation on many important issues. The judicial appointment process has become highly politicized as each side fights for a court majority, and we increase the risk of ill-advised decisions. When all of its seats are filled, the court as it stands now always operates with either a conservative or liberal majority, which means it is inherently a political battleground. Now, it's not an all-the-time battleground because justices maintain their seats until they retire, are impeached, or die. (laughs) But that actually makes the stakes much higher. Once one side creates a majority on the court, the effects of that can potentially outlast the immediate controlling power of that party or perspective. In the opening statement of his 2005 confirmation hearing for Chief Justice of the United States, Justice John Roberts said, Judges and justices are servants of the law, not the other way around. Judges are like umpires. Umpires don't make the rules, they apply them. The role of an umpire and a judge is critical. They make sure everybody plays by the rules, but it's a limited role. Judges are not politicians who can promise to do certain things in exchange for votes. I have no agenda, but I do have a commitment. If I'm confirmed, I will confront every case with an open mind. I will fully and fairly analyze the legal arguments that are presented I will be open to the considered views of my colleagues on the bench, and I will decide every case based on the record, according to the rule of law, without fear or favor to the best of my ability, and I will remember that it is my job to call balls and strikes, and not to pitch or bat. And it would appear, too, from his record that he has worked to keep that promise. Though he himself tends to take a conservative perspective, his decisions don't follow one train of ideological thought. However, as our political system has become even more polarized, almost weaponized, that commitment seems much more difficult to recognize in the rest of today's court. While there hasn't been a liberal, a liberal majority court since 1969 which we'll get into in a little bit, Mm -hmm. right now there is a 6-3 conservative super majority, the first time in almost 50 years. Interestingly enough, Roe v. Wade was decided during that period, and five of the six Republican-appointed justices were in the majority. That means they, they decided in favor of Roe v. Wade. But that kind of bipartisan decision making isn't the hallmark of this court. Usually around... Half of the court's rulings are unanimous, and the decisions that divide the court by a conservative or liberal bloc are less common. But this year, only 29% of decisions were unanimous, and 21% of decisions were polarized by the party of the appointing president, with all Republican nominees or appointees, excuse me, going one way and all Democratic appointees going the other way. Because the Supreme Court largely controls its own docket, Who sits on the court has a significant impact on what cases they decide to hear and what decisions then impact our daily lives. A working majority of conservative justices is going to choose a different set of cases than a liberal majority. And that means that all of those factors outlined by Professor Ornlicher are even more relevant. 
But this supermajority status is no accident of democracy. Conservatives have had control of the courts in their sights for a long, long time. And their plans have worked well. Yeah. And by a long time, we mean probably since the late 1960s. Uh, that 1969 date suddenly becomes very important mm -hmm. here. As Adam Cohen illustrates in his book, Supreme Inequality, the Supreme Court's 50-year battle for a more unjust America. He's a got a point to make there. Aggressive title right there. Um, in the last five decades of the Supreme Court, we have seen their decisions move away from traditionally progressive ideologies like protecting or advancing the middle class and poor, and more closely align with conservative ideologies like protecting corporate interests. And there's a reason for that. We can trace this move for control all the way back to the Warren Court of the 1950s and 60s. Under Earl Warren, the court decided landmark civil rights cases like Brown v. Board of Education. They ruled, they ruled in Cooper v. Aaron that states couldn't refuse to follow Supreme Court rulings because a lot of them were ref refusing to follow Brown v. Board of Education. Uh, they decided Reynolds v. Sims, which held that legislative districts needed to be of roughly equal size to ensure proper representation for all voters. In other words, the Warren court wrested control of a lot of issues away from the states and extended the protection of the United States Constitution to previously unrepresented people. And, uh, well, we all know how conservatives felt about that. So starting in 1969, Richard Nixon nominated four conservative justices to the court. The decisions coming out of the court since have limited welfare payments, upheld disparities in public school funding, reduced workers' rights by upholding arbitration agreements and rejecting class action treatment for cases alleging widespread harms. They've created due process limitations on punitive damages, identified spending money to influence politics as a First Amendment right, and more. Conservatives have identified and campaigned on the idea of the courts as a critical issue for the continuation of the conservative agenda in America. The Supreme Court has, I dare say, become the center of a Republican Party mobilization for like 50 years. But, right, 50 years. And that seems like a very long time, especially in in America, where politics changes every, well, on the national level, we have an election every two years. So how? How did they stay focused and, and, and campaign or, or continue to campaign unified in their decision or their drive to take over courts and not just the Supreme Court, but, you know, the appellate courts and the federal courts at all levels for five decades? Right. I mean, so I think one thing that I didn't include in the actual script here, but that factors in is some of these big landmark cases that we've seen happen over the last 50 years. We had Brown v. Board of Education, and that got them all riled up. And then we had Roe v. Wade. And then we had Obergefell and Hot v. Hodges and, and all of these other cases that have given them something to fight against the entire time. They've given them reasons to tell their constituency we need to take back the court. In 2018, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell outlined the conservative perspective on the court very clearly at a gala of the Federalist Society, saying, we must do everything we can for as long as we can to transform the federal judiciary, 
because everything else we do is transitory. McConnell and his fellow conservatives understand that any legislation passed or executive order signed can eventually be stricken down by the courts. But if conservatives want to make change that lasts, they have to control the courts. Support for this focus also comes from the Federalist Society, that that society that we mentioned earlier. It was started in 1982 as a collection of law students at elite law schools. The Federalist Society is arguably, I think, the most influential group in America right now, solely because of its focus on dominating the courts. Mm -hmm. Because of that focus, we have this podcast, this series right now because of the things coming out of the Supreme Court. Well, this podcast is brought to you by the Federalist Society. (laughs) (laughs) No, They would never endorse that. They would definitely not. Um, Its members, the Federalist Society members, are not only on the Supreme Court. They're in the Senate. Ted Cruz and Tom Cotton both members, and they're in the president's cabinet, or the former president's cabinet. Uh, Trump's attorney general, Jeff Sessions, Federalist Society member. The, the Federalist Society was founded and still calls itself as a, a group of conservatives and libertarians. And since its inception, the Federalist Society was committed to creating an organization of conservative lawyers who feel comfortable believing in and advocating conservative positions. That's a quote. Mm -hmm. And they're not only, they've not only done it, they've cornered the market. The influence wielded by the Federalist Society is so apparent that it is now almost impossible to get a federal judgeship or clerkship or executive branch legal job in a Republican administration if you are not a member of the Federalist Society. The Federalist Society has not only ensured a steady supply of conservative judges, but also a steady supply of conservative legal thinkers who have weaponized issues such as abortion and gay marriage to mobilize conservative voters and motivate them to cast their vote based on control of the courts. When you see the big picture here, it definitely helps explain why President Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland, not a Federalist Society member, led to McConnell killing the nomination single-handedly thus ensuring that the next president would immediately have a Supreme Court seat to fill and providing Republican candidates with a strong platform pillar and voters with a strong incentive to vote for their candidate. And like, let's, I don't want to, um, to ignore the fact that even though Merrick Garland was nominated by Obama, Merrick Garland himself is very, like, if, if this phrase can be used without abusing the words, he's very moderate. Mm-hmm. He is not a leftist judge. In fact, he probably would have fairly evenly, if I understand things correctly, ruled on, on both sides of the political spectrum. Um, perhaps maybe a little bent to the left, but if my reading of, of, of his history and his judicial process is correct, which you could be wrong. Um, he was, he was not, he was not extreme. Yeah. So it's weird for, or it's not weird. It, it's telling that his nomination was shot down so thoroughly and so hypocritically. Right. Might I add. Right. 
I mean, not that um, all the politics is not hypocritical. Like we're not saying yeah, that. Yeah, but I'm looking. But that looking at you, felt Andy Barrett. Very, that felt particularly hypocritical. Oh, it's extra, super duper hypocritical. Yeah. Anyway, how then can conservatives know that a court nominee is the right kind? Well, it has a lot to do with a term that has made its way into the average American's lexicon originalism. Listen, judicial philosophy is not the most exciting subject that I've ever researched. Okay, I confirmed that just double uh, in this episode. But somehow, some way, it is a pressing enough topic to occupy headlines at the same time that, you know, we're dealing with international human rights atrocities and battling a global pandemic and wrestling with the outcomes of an insurrection at the nation's capital. And that's because it has become a core topic at the confirmation hearings of Justices Kavanaugh and Coney Barrett and Brown Jackson. You may remember Republican senators grilling Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, asking her to clarify her judicial philosophy and her response that she prefers a methodology in a kind of similar way to Chief Justice Roberts, actually, um, comparing how she approaches the Constitution with the way that he approaches the Constitution that actually felt very similar for two people who ideologically probably are on two very different sides of a spectrum. Um, But what they were trying to interrogate, excuse me, I mean, tease out, discover, is what perspective she would take on constitutional interpretation. There are a variety of philosophies that justices employ as they review the cases that come before them. And we give a good, if brief, overview of the most common in our season two episode, A Smattering of SCOTUS. <laughs> if you if you the say ear holes because it makes a... me cringe, I love that episode title because it makes you cringe. Um, <laughs> but the one... The one judicial philosophy that seems to hold the most importance for conservatives in their quest to dominate the court is one called originalism. Now, the first mention of originalism in a legal periodical only dates back to about 1980. But there are snippets of phrases like original meaning, and they have been used in a constitutional context since eh, the 1930s. Still not the founding of America there. In fact, one of the first uses of the phrase in that way was part of a discussion over substantive due process, which we describe in great detail earlier in this series. So go back and listen to it if you are not familiar. Um, Where the writer said, there would be far greater advantage in restoring the original meaning of the privileges and immunities clause and by the process of inclusion and exclusion, letting the country know what are now federal privileges than in, inf- than in forcing the court to draw upon the fathomless depths of the due process clause to give effect to their personal convictions of economic and social propriety. In judicial practice, we see the phrasing used in a constitutional context starting in 1966. In his dissenting opinion in Harper v. Virginia State Board of of Elections, Justice Black wrote, The court overrules Breedlove in part, but its opinion reveals that it does so not by using its limited power to interpret the original meaning of the Equal Protection Clause, but by giving that clause a new meaning, which it believes represents a better governmental policy. From this action, I dissent. 
starting to notice a pattern here. Originalism as a fully formed concept emerged in the 1970s and 1980s as a conservative response to what they saw as the, the abuses and activism of the more liberal Warren and Berger courts. They were concerned that under the auspices of the, quote, living constitution philosophy, which holds that the constitution should be interpreted conceptually in light of a changing world. Crazy, huh? Right? The idea that a bunch of old white dudes 250 years ago didn't have the prophetic wisdom to create a document that would apply equally and effectively to all that came after? Sorry, I'm grumpy. I'm grumpy about it. In case you can't tell, my philosophy is a living constitution philosophy. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's they, they they literally built in a method for changing the Constitution. Yeah. They obviously did not believe the Constitution should remain unaltered for the rest of time. Right. Anyway. But we digress. They were concerned. They were concerned. The conservatives were concerned that through this activism, judges were substituting their own progressive preferences in place of what the Constitution actually licensed. And at the core of this was and is a fear that if we reimagine the Constitution, we subvert the fundamental relationship of constitutionalism, that those in power are subject to the Constitution and not the other way around. And we get it. Most folks, liberal or conservative, are not interested in living in a country where our freedoms are wholly subject to the whims of the ruling party. Yeah, logically, I can understand that line of thinking, though let's be perfectly clear, I personally disagree with the, the way that they choose to manage that. Um, if we want to keep justices from legislating from the bench, so to speak, then we have to remove their interpretive license. That's their perspective. For conservatives, this meant fully undermining the idea that the existing Constitution's meaning could evolve with society, barring that formal amendment process. Yes, they built in a process to change the Constitution, and conservatives believe that that is the only meaningful way that we can change what the Constitution means. Otherwise, its interpretation must remain fixed and, cons and constant over time. Um, those who endorsed this theory of interpretation began to call themselves originalists and in doing so very quickly signaled their alliance with conservative politicians and thinkers and pundits. In the early years, these movers and shakers were more concerned with the idea of judicial restraint and holding steady in the face of sweeping proposed changes to law and liberty. Now, as law professor Eric Segal points out, the original originalists understood that to be sincere and honest in their application would have meant a very strong deferential stance toward the legislative branch, because that was the original understanding of judicial review. In Federalist Number 78, Alexander Hamilton makes it incredibly clear that the judiciary is only intended to be a mediator between the law and the Constitution and should only act when there is an irreconcilable variance between the two. Judicial review should be limited, modest, and used sparingly. But then came the 90s, and whew, man, they made everything weird. And also God, wonderful. Seriously, everything weird and wonderful. Liza Frank. 
political polarization really started picking up speed in the 1990s. And as it and as it did, more judges and academics began to see the effectiveness of using originalism from an offensive stance. They began to urge more judicial review when considering cases in an effort to create more conservative constitutional outcomes. As they did that, though, the references to actual historical context became more scarce. And now it seems the term originalist is more of a code word than an actual methodology. Hmm. hmm. Um, there, it's, a, it's an indicator that a judge, a policymaker, or academic is willing to work toward a conservative, and we mean that term politically, application of the Constitution. That is, instead of viewing the Constitution as a mediator above cultural conflict, they are actually appending conservative ideology to the Constitution and saying the Constitution is conservative and therefore our policies should also be conservative. Yeah, they're using it to protect or to restore politically conservative values rather than uh, being conservative in their use of judicial review. So how, how, how do we stop this runaway train that seems hell-bent on stripping back the national protections that have allowed for us to grow into a more equitable and more tolerant society? I don't think people are going to like this answer. <laughs> they never do. I know. I know they don't. But honestly... Doing something to mitigate the damage of this backslide is going to come down to a lot of factors you've heard before. There's no magic pill. There's no switch to flip. There's no wish to be made here. You're going to have to get out. You're going to have to vote. But you can't stop at just voting. You have to have conversations with your friends, your family, everyone you can. And that doesn't mean get into arguments with them. But we all need to be willing to have these hard and, yes, sometimes uncomfortable conversations. Gone is the time when we can assume that our peers are even aware of the problems around us. It's so easy to shut down, to tune out. And a lot of people would rather do that. But if you want to stop the erosion of rights that we think have been set into motion with this summer's Supreme Court decisions, you cannot just be content with your comfort. I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, you're likely already doing these things. So here's some more specific action that you can take. Start focusing on the courts when you look at who you're going to vote for. Does your candidate believe in court reform, term limits, or other structural changes to the court? Pay attention to what kind of judges presidential candidates say that they will appoint. Will they be traditional and moderate? Or are they aiming for a diversity of experience and backgrounds? Educate yourself and others about the long-term plans and goals of every political candidate. And when a nominee is being interviewed for a judicial position, listen to their answers. 
Do they apply originalism as their primary lens when making decisions? Or do they try to balance their analysis with multiple judicial disciplines? Um, a lot of people were on both sides were really frustrated during the confirmation hearings of Justice Jackson because she didn't take an approach that that made either side happy. I mean, she basically promised to like work through a whole bunch of different steps before she considered whether or not she should make a decision. And that made people on both political sides of the aisle very angry. And generally, if a, a judge is willing to make people on both sides of the political aisle angry, they're willing to take a reasonable and moderate approach to the Constitution, right? <laughs> um, one would hope, one would assume. Right. I, we need to... Yes. No. Sorry, go on. I just was going to say, I think a lot of people were hoping that we would say something like, pack the court, you know, or yeah. or fight for term limits. Rebalance or, it or do something like that. Right. Yeah. But the reality is the most effective thing that we can do that will not have long-term consequences that will just be down this road again. The next time they fill out the court is all of this action, actual individual action. Yeah. And that's not to say that there isn't some place for discussion for rebalancing the courts, um, for, uh, for considering new, um, I don't know, a new architecture of how we put people on the court. But, and lest you come at me for being a liberal who's talking about packing the courts, <laughs> um, first of all, conservatives have been explicitly attempting to pack the courts for decades. Mm -hmm. We just talked about it. Mm -hmm. So maybe look in the mirror first. And secondly, Balancing the courts and making sure that it reflects the population and their political leanings is not the same as packing the courts and making sure that one side's political leanings dominate the decisions. Yeah. It's just not. So on top of all of that, personal work you can do, get rid, dispense with the mentality that these things are boring. Frankly, they are not, but I cannot force you to believe that they are not boring. But we have all been sold on this lie for our entire lives that lull us into an action. I was not this passionate about politics, about the judicial process, about how our country's legislation gets made and passed and all of all of that gross way that the government works, even when I was getting a degree in political science, <laughs> okay? But the more you read about it, especially from a personal level, the more interesting it is, the more frustrating it gets, yeah. the more you realize that all of us, not any side, not one side or the other, all of us are complacent in our own misery if we continue to not turn out to vote, if we continue to assume or shut out, shut down whenever discussions about the, the political process takes place, if we believe that our vote doesn't mean anything. Judicial philosophy, court reform, all the multiple things that our pod touches on week after week, these are the foundations of what makes our society our society. If we grow complacent and fail to undertake the most basic of civic duties to become truly informed voters, we're allowing the society that we all have to share and live in to be dominated by a minority of those within it. Absolutely. And this 
this advice does not just apply to federal level courts, right? Every time I go to the ballot box, I am confronted with the reality that I did not do the work of researching the judges that they're asking me if I should keep or get rid of. I've done my best. It's hard to chase down the information on which judges you're actually going to be asked to vote for, depending on where you live. Um, But do that work, because before things ever get to the United States Supreme Court, they have to go through levels and levels and levels of local and state courts. If you can influence the courts at the state level, then you can influence what eventually makes it to the United States Supreme Court. And yes, we know that we're contending with gerrymandered districts and we're contending with state governments that don't accurately reflect their populations. But we also have to remember that if we don't get out there and take action, then we're not doing anything to make our voices heard. The decisions that are made by those minorities can take decades to rectify, to reflect the actual majority. But that only happens if we, the voting public, allow it. Like, don't give in to defeat and fatalism. Settle in, buckle down, and get involved as if the future of this great democratic experiment were on the line. Because it is. You know what else is on line? (laughs) Oh my god, there it is. (laughs) We are at Fireside Breakdowns. Dot com. Oh my god, that was so And I am ashamed of myself. <laughs> no. Yes, that you was can amazing. find you can find uh everything you need to know about us on at firesidebreakdowns.com. Show notes. You want to read our notes and see our sources? Go to firesidebreakdowns.com. You want links to our social media? firesidebreakdowns.com. You think that we are doing something great here and want to throw money at us? Go to firesidebreakdowns.com. And then click on the link to go to Patreon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and you can do that. We have cool bonus content that only Patreon subscribers get. Yeah. Um, we have, oh, it, as a Patreon subscriber, you get access to next week's episode this week. That's yes. right. All of our episodes are released one week in, week in advance. So if you really want to listen to a follow-up episode or whatever's coming down the pipe, you can do it. Yes. We, it's there. It's there. We've been very effective at it so far. Three episodes in, he says. Um, there's a newsletter, too, that'll tell you what's coming for the month. And um, if you feel like we have gone off the deep end with this series, if we are beyond the pale and you need to let us know about it, we have a mailbox there. You can send us a note straight to us. We get it. We read them. Mm-hmm. I promise you we, we read them. We totes do. And... That is a great way to reach out and communicate directly to us. Uh, we would love to hear from you. If there's something we got wrong, if there's something we got right, just drop us a note. If nothing else, please leave us a review. Don't, don't just give us five stars, although we appreciate every single person who does give us five stars. But also leave a written review. The algorithm loves that. It's like a freaking Thanksgiving dinner for it. It makes it fat and happy. So... Words are good, folks. Use your words. Okay. Use your words. Use your words. That's that's all the pitch for our our socials and websites now. As usual, we're gonna we're gonna close out this week with some good 
news. Okay, but before we do that, I really have to brag on us because we've been so good at social. So good at social for the first two episodes of this season. We're going to keep it up. I know we are. I know we are. I'm just super proud of us. We're on fire. We're making reels, guys. We're making reels. 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 I made a a deck of photos the other day. It was a whole new world for me because I am not a media person. Yeah. Uh, It was incredible. Yeah, I'm almost almost 40. I mean, the learning curve for reels is just basically beyond the pale for me. And I'm giving it my best. Anyway, good news. Tell me something good. Good news. Whew, I will do that. In the week that we are recording this, the U.S. House of Representatives has passed a few pieces of legislation aimed at shoring up some of the cracks in civil rights uh, and the precedents set by the Dobbs decision. The things that we've been talking about for these three episodes now. They've passed bills aimed at protecting interracial and same-sex marriage, access to contraception, and even access to abortion. And while we know that all of this legislation is likely to die in the Senate, however, however, we have five of the needed 10 Republican votes to support same-sex marriage. So that's, that's a that's start. Huge. I'm sure there are others. That's massive in this day and age. And I am, I am sure that there are others who just haven't uh, expressed their support for it yet that will. So there's a chance. There's, there's a, chance a chance at least. That we will overcome the filibuster and get that one passed. Fingers crossed, people. Um, we're calling this good news despite the fact that none of it might pass um, because it actually represents the healthy functionality of the relationship between the branches of government. Whether or not you agree with the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, the next appropriate process for federal protection of the right to abortion care is through the legislative branch of government. This is how things are supposed to work. Yeah, and... We're ignoring that in most cases, the splits on these bills were down party lines. Instead, we're celebrating that 47 Republicans voted with the Democrats to protect access to marriage and that eight joined them in voting to protect access to contraception. And we're also ignoring that Republican members of the House are calling these bills performative and unnecessary because we know that these bills reflect the opinions of a majority of Americans. 92% of Americans believe contraception is morally acceptable. 71% believe that same-sex relationships are morally acceptable. If the vehicle for reflecting the laws and protections that Americans want is our legislative system, then this is a win. For now. And frankly, we need a little good news in our lives. And it is damn hard to come by these days. Honestly, this is one of the parts of the episode where we consistently spend the most time researching. It's so hard. It's hard. It folks. was. It, good it news is so much more hard news. in season three than it was in season one. So much oh, more sure. hard. So, so much, much harder. <laughs> there it is. God, my words. We're smart, folks. We my are words so are smart. Yeah. I blame All right, research that's, on judicial philosophies. Uh, a incredibly exciting aspect of the American political system that everybody should be interested in. On that note, (laughs) we're out for this week's episode. We are going to hit the books hard for next week. Stay tuned. We're very excited to bring it to you. Until next week, take care of each other. (laughs) 